If you would, this morning, if you could take your Bible and open it up to the fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians, please. I'll do that now as well. We are getting back to our series in this letter this morning. And we have just finished, over through the month of December, Pastor Nick has preached a short consideration of the doctrine of Christ. That was a tough topic, but I hope that it was a rewarding one for you. And I hope that we were all able to learn something and be built up together in our faith through it. And actually, if you really want to explore this idea of the doctrine of Christ, what it, who Jesus is in his character and his person and his nature, I'd be happy to suggest a couple systematic theologies to you or some shorter books as well, too, if you really want to dive in more on that topic. But as I was saying, our, our attention this morning is going to be put back on the letter to 1 Corinthians, what the Lord has for us in store there. It's an interesting text. I don't know if you've read it already in preparation for this morning, but this is one of those passages that most pastors don't naturally gravitate towards. Uh, they wouldn't naturally do it, especially from a surface reading of the text. Like nobody says, I just I can't wait to preach 1 Corinthians 5.1. This is one of the advantages, actually, though, of preaching through a book verse by verse. Uh, it, focus, it forces us to deal with every passage. And doing so with exposition, which means to draw out the main point of the text, is especially helpful. And maybe I'll say something else really quick about that as well, too. Another advantage of being in a, in a church where we're going through a book verse by verse is that you can prepare your heart some before the night before. This is especially helpful if you have little children because you know the next Sunday, the next Lord's Day, we're going to read the next verses. And so you can sit down that night before and pray over those verses and talk about them with your little ones if you have little children. And that way you can be all the more prepared to hear the word preached when you come on the Lord's Day to gather with the church. But what we're really um, focusing on, and this is, an important, this is an important passage, so I'm glad that we're not glancing over it, skipping over it, because it's really important. What we will be really focusing on this morning is the first two verses of the chapter. But in reality, chapter 5 is one large unit. So we're going we're gonna to take the whole chapter and read the whole thing this morning. I figured it would be prudent to do that. But that also means that some of the things that we're going to look at today are going to be revisited over the next coming weeks as we stay and continue preaching through chapter 5. So we should have lots of time, by God's grace, to process these topics. So then let's read the passage, and then we'll pray before we study His Word together. The Word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing." When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, but the leaven of, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. May he apply it to our hearts. Brothers and sisters, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And the text before us this morning is difficult. 
at a number of places, certainly mature. And so we want to approach it sober-mindedly and guided by your Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open up our hearts and our eyes to the truths of your Word, that you would help me to get out of the way, and that you might permit me to only speak what is true, that Christ might be exalted, that we might grow together in our love for you and be all the more conformed to Jesus, our Savior, our Great Shepherd. In his name we pray. Amen. So, this is a difficult passage to approach. The subject matter is mature. And I'm, I'm mindful of the culture that we have been trying to cultivate here at First Family Church, uh, a culture that was just normal for the church until really this modern era. We welcome the little children here into the building that they may hear the word preached. Uh, we believe that to be the model of Scripture based off of Deuteronomy, Ephesians 6, and other instances. And now we have to deal with the problem of, well, uh, incest in the church. It's a mature topic, and we certainly want to approach it faithfully. And we're shown how the Apostle Paul wanted the church in Corinth to deal with it through the often neglected means of what is called church discipline. Church discipline is certainly neglected by many congregations today. It's very rare for churches to put into practice what the Word instructs concerning sin in the body. It simply doesn't happen as often as it should, and in some churches it actually never happens at all. What Jesus instructs in Matthew 18, what Paul describes here in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, or in Galatians 6, or in Ephesians 5, or in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, or in 1 and 2 Timothy, and in Titus, and really any time in which the Scripture guides us in correcting the sin that exists among us as a group, is, it's simply not the norm for many congregations today. Pastor D. James Kennedy I wonder if you remember who he is or if you have you ever heard of him, you know who he is. He fell asleep in the Lord a little over 10 years ago or so, and he's, but he's a well-known author. He was a, a pastor at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Florida, and he was especially well-known for his uh, evangelism material called Evangelism Explosion. He was also a prominent speaker in a documentary called uh, The Doctrines of Grace, The History and Theology of Calvinism. It's really good. I would recommend it to you if you've never seen that. But anyway, many years ago, before I was a Christian myself, actually, I, I saw this video. I saw this video a couple of years ago, but it was, it's an old video, a video that took place before I myself was actually a believer. And D. James Kennedy was being interviewed on some popular news channel along with uh, Dr. John MacArthur and about a scandal that happened in the church. That's James Kennedy there. And his comment uh, on church discipline some 20-plus years ago was that even then, church discipline is deader than a dodo bird. Now, usually not the kind of quote that I share, I suppose, but obviously church discipline is not extinct. I, Kennedy's church did it. MacArthur's church does it. Our church has had to do it. But generally speaking, it's not practiced much. That's what he was meaning to say there. And this is a really big problem, friends. It's at the heart of the issue here at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Churches that fail to practice church discipline can hardly be recognized as a true church even. And this has serious implications, friends. Back around the time of the Reformation, Christians really had to think about what does it mean to be a church? Because you have all these people that have broken off from this apostate body, the Roman Catholic Church, because they had all these extra biblical standards that... Uh, defined what you know, certain doctrines, but especially also as well what a church was. So Sinclair Ferguson, he's a he's a living pastor today. He's a Protestant. He wrote he wrote that the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century basically argued that Christ preserved the true church through the work of the Pope, the Bishop of Rome. The church is easy to recognize because it is in fellowship with the Pope. Any church that does not submit to the Pope is therefore a false church. And so you could see how that would be a problem. I think. It's not going to fly for anyone who holds the Word of God as their standard of the, of the rule of faith. And so what comes to be discovered over time by searching the Word for an answer to the question of what does it mean to be a church are, are what are we now call these three marks of a true church. All three of these marks come from the Word of God itself. And this is really helpful for us today, I think, because 
not only do we live in a culture, a society that has Roman Catholic churches and Eastern Orthodox churches, but we also live in a culture that has churches like the Mormon Church or the Adventist Church or the Jehovah's Witness Church. And we can go on and on about all these different other so-called churches. And then we have countless number of other uh, churches that may fall under Protestantism, either with, within a denomination or even apart from a denomination. And so how do we know what a true church is? Well, we graciously hold up that church to these three marks, knowing that every church is still going to be populated with sinners, but there should be these three things. When we consider what is a true church, number one, the faithful preaching and receiving of the Word of God. That's the first mark of a true church, the faithful preaching and receiving of the Word of God. The Word, in all its fullness, is put forth unashamedly, and there is a people there present who receive the preached word with joy and gladness, even, even when you know, the preached word might grate against our flesh, might grate against our, our nature that still and likes to indulge itself in sin. I mean, imagine, imagine Paul here who is spending a lot of time correcting the saints in Corinth. What if they got his letter and just crumbled it up and then just tossed it over their shoulder? And threw it away. What if they didn't receive it? Would that be a mark of a true church for them? No, right? Because Paul preached the word of God. And the second mark of a true church is like the first one, because it is dealing with visual signs that point to the word. The second mark is the faithful administration and receiving of the two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. In order for a church to be a true church as defined by Scripture, there needs to be the faithful preaching and receiving of God's Word, and there also needs to be the faithful administration and receiving of the two ordinances. They matter. It's important that you do them faithfully and biblically. And then thirdly, church discipline is the last mark of a true church. The faithful practice of church discipline needs to exist because we see that it matters in the Word. And we'll discuss more of what it looks like this morning and over the coming weeks, I'm sure, so I won't go too much into it right at this moment. Now, if we were to just kind of pull back a little bit and consider the flow of the book, we notice that chapter 5 begins a new section, a section addressing the witness of the church. But... And it's, it's difficult to break it up into little chunks, but you can, maybe, you can maybe do it like this. There's probably other ways as well, too. But verse 1 and 2, which we'll be focusing on this morning primarily, they make a, a section introducing this new matter. That will be our focus. And then in verse 3 to 5, Paul speaks toward his apostolic and judicial uh, response to the problem. And if you're looking at your word right now, I mean, just look at the complexity of, of verse 3. For though I'm absent in body, I am present in spirit. What does that mean? That's tough, Pastor Nick. (laughs) That's you next week. Then 6 to 8, Paul goes into the danger or to the detail about the danger of not addressing sin in the church. And then from verse 9 to the close of this chapter, he clarifies something that he wrote to this church earlier in a previous letter about them associating with the sexually immoral. And then this new section spills right into chapter 6. There the apostle addresses lawsuits among believers. That's a very big deal. Christians shouldn't have lawsuits amongst each other. And then at the end of chapter 6, he goes into the issue of sexual immorality in greater detail. So three issues that were reported to him that end up affecting the witness of the church. Three areas, and these aren't the only three, mind you, that end up impacting what the world thinks about believers. But they're the ones he addresses here. Now, What the world thinks about the church is important, but we need to think about this rightly, friends. Never will a local church's actions be the final determining factor in a person rejecting or receiving Christ. I could speak from personal experience here at this this point. When I was not a believer, it didn't matter to me what the church did well or didn't do well. I was opposed to the gospel because of the hardness of my own heart. I was opposed to the church for the very same reason. And even today, when a lost person hears the things that the church stands for, it's off-putting to them. It's evil to them because their works are evil and they themselves are evil. But there is a danger of the church acting hypocritical, isn't there? 
there is a danger of the church not acting like the church. But the problem here isn't so much that it hardens the lost person's heart towards us. I mean, maybe perhaps our hypocrisy as a church cements their already negative opinion that they have if we have such hypocrisy as a body. But the real danger that I see, at least, is what it makes the world think about the holiness of God. We want the world, we want even the lost, to have the most correct, the highest view of God's holiness that they can possibly have as an unregenerate sinner. Don't we? Don't, don't we want that? God's holiness defines him. He is holy, holy, holy. The Father is holy. The Son is holy. The Spirit is holy. And brothers and sisters, we don't want to live in such a way that makes the lost, that makes those who are under condemnation think that God takes sin lightly. There's a, a danger in our, in our hypocrisy if that's the case, because God does not take sin lightly. You understand that, right? We are to put off our old self, which belongs to the former manner of life, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, the Apostle Paul says to the church in Ephesus. And so Paul here in this new section addresses how these divisive issues relate to our witness in the world. When churches behave badly and, and do nothing about it, our witness is obstructed and the lost ends up with a false view of the holiness of God. And when it comes to the church's responsibility to the lost, we can't, can't make them saved. We can't make them believe but what we do, what we are responsible for by the grace that God equips us with is to rightly portray him to the world. And so you'll see this, I trust. But in our text that we have for consideration this morning, that sexual immorality is not the main issue. Paul's not concerned primarily with the offender here, though his sin is absolutely atrocious though his sin is absolutely a stain on the church's witness. But the primary issue for the church here in our passage this morning, and really all throughout chapter 5, is the church's response to this sin. It's their lack of action that is an even greater issue than the sin that this man was caught up in, as amazing as that is. First one mentions the, immor the immorality, but then every single other verse deals with the response to the sin. That's the issue for the Apostle Paul here. And I think that makes sense to us even from the outset, because we know ourselves, don't we? We're sinners. Are we surprised about that? You know, hopefully, by the Lord's grace, we don't indulge our sin. We don't make excuses for our sin either. But you don't have to hang around another Christian for too long to know that we are all sinners. It's not surprising that there is sin in the church in Corinth. It's not surprising that there is sin here in our church. We are declared righteous because of Christ's work and life and death on our behalf. But that doesn't mean that we are perfect and that we'll never have to deal with our own sin. There is this, there is this mystery about us as Christians that Martin Luther would call Samuel Eustace et peccator. Samuel Eustace et peccator, which means, it's Latin, for at the same time, righteous and sinner. That is what you are if you're a Christian. You are at the same time righteous and sinner. You've been declared righteous because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, but yet you are nevertheless still a sinner. But God accepts you based upon Christ's righteousness and his righteousness alone. And... This is the problem that every church must face and deal with. So the primary issue that Paul identifies here in, with this issue that we read about is the church's lack of action against sin. And it's due to their arrogance. It's due to their pride. And this is a big problem for the Apostle Paul. For the church to ignore sin like this is really actually the same thing as rejecting the gospel itself. That's how big of an issue that this is. And why is that? Well, because there is new life in Christ. A person, when they receive Christ, is a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. 
that the old has passed away and behold, the new has come. It doesn't mean that they are perfect, but it does mean that they have been changed. Our disposition towards sin changes. What we once used to love, now we should by grace hate. Putting sin to death, expelling sin from the body is a gospel issue, friends. And the term, you know, this term gospel issue, it gets thrown around so much today, too much. Not everything that is called a gospel issue by people today is actually a gospel issue, but this absolutely is a gospel issue. The issue of unrepented sin, of unchecked sin, is not something that we are to leave to chance. The Apostle has already addressed this issue from another angle in the letter already. Pastor Nick spoke about it a few months back, about the, this positional concept of a carnal Christian, of the kind of person that thinks Jesus can be Savior without Him also being Lord. You know, that's a, a false dichotomy. And so the ultimate goal of this section here in 5 and then also in 6 is to get the church to deal with the sexually immoral people in the church, to get them to deal with sinners and sin in the church. He wants them to properly deal with the offender here in verse 1, which means five things. Number one, understanding God's holiness. That's the first thing, that when, when people sin and they act as if it's no big deal, there is absolutely a misunderstanding about God's holiness. Number two, the depth of sin. Number three, the danger of sin. Number four, the purification of the body. And number five, the restoration of the person, if possible. You know, this hope of restoration. How do we deal with the offender who sins? Again, it's the understanding of God's holiness, the depth of sin, the danger of sin, purification of the body, and restoration of the person, if possible. And I should mention as well, those five points are always the goal of church discipline. There's this error that sometimes comes across with church discipline. And that error is simply that it's sometimes assumed or sometimes we unadvertedly make it all about point five, the restoration of the person if possible. But it's not about only that point. It's what we have hope for. It's what we desire in every situation. It's what we continue to pray for. But that's not the only thing. It's also about God's holiness. It's also about the purity of the church. And we've done church discipline a number of times here at FFC. It's never pleasant, but we're always faithful to the word of God when we do it. We've never had to do it like it's described here in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Hopefully we have never been in error for that because, you know, when we do church discipline, we, we like to err on the side of patience, of grace, and mercy. But sometimes, honestly, church discipline doesn't produce the goal that we desire. And that, that hurts. Our hearts ache for those who are put out of the assembly. But despite that, we need to put the highest goal at the top. The greatest goal of church discipline is maintaining the purity of the body of Christ because that is what glorifies God. Christ is the head of the church. The restoration of the person is a pleasant and joyful grace that the Lord sometimes grants us. But the purity of the church, which speaks to God's holiness and glory, is the ultimate goal. So, I've stalled as long as I could before getting to verse 1 to deal with what verse 1 says. So let's read verse 1. Consider that there. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality. And I'm just going to use the Greek word for sexual immorality here because I think we are all familiar with this root word that we have other words based off of in our English language. It's the Greek word porneia. So Paul says that it is actually reported that there is porneia among them. And of course, you could probably already think of what words that sounds like in our English language. Now, notice how the section begins. This is something that is reported. This is something that the Apostle Paul has heard. Perhaps this is something that is common knowledge to the churches in the area. 
Perhaps it is something that is simply known in Corinth, even by the, the lost world. Probably, though, this is information that came to Paul by the report of Chloe's people. If you remember back in Ephesians chapter 1, we read that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth based off of a report that he heard from these household residents of Chloe. Now, he deals first with the problem of division, and some people believe that's possibly because the division in the church is the bigger issue. Like, if you've got so many issues to deal with, maybe you want to take and tackle the, the heaviest one, the, the, the biggest problem first. Some people think that's the case. That's why he deals with division first. But I don't know that this is actually an issue with weighing sins here. Now, now he comes up to this sexual immorality and this issue of not dealing with sin. I don't think this is necessarily Paul weighing issues by the order that he addresses these sins. It's not that division is a greater sin than sexual immorality or the lack of dealing with sin, but it's the pride, it's the arrogance of the saints at Corinth that seems to be the issue. And it's this pride between them that actually leads to the division that was mentioned in the first three chapters. In other words, some people were arrogant. They were prideful about who it was that they claimed and they held to as their factional leader, as their head. For some, it was Paul, who was a preferred teacher. Others, it was Apollos. Others, it was Peter. For some, even, it was apparently Jesus as well. And this pride, this puffed-upness of the saints in Corinth, this arrogance on their part leads to a whole host of other sins as well, of which he's now addressing another one. This issue of not of being sexually immoral, and then also not being repentant of it, and then also the church not dealing with it. He's already addressed arrogance in his letter already. This isn't a, a necessarily a brand new issue, even though here we're at a new section. He's already addressed it in chapter 4. We just spoke of it in the previous sermon, though um, that was at the end of November, so it might not be fresh in your head. So I'll refer back to it shortly. But it's not simply that this pornea has been reported to him, is it? Look again at verse 1. It's, it is actually reported that there is pornea among you. You, you can hear the shock, even if I didn't read it with that emphasis myself, I think. There is stress on the word actually. Gordon Fee says that there is horror in that note of Paul's introduction. It's as if Paul's saying that he cannot believe he's having to address them for this sin, this issue in their church. It is deplorable. How can this pornea be reported among Bible-believing Christians? And pornea is a, is a broad word, really. It simply can refer to all sorts of immorality. But this specific issue that Paul is addressing is a shock to him. And it's also a shock to him that it doesn't shock them. Now, pornea, of course, was widely accepted in the Greco-Roman world. These people, these Gentiles, they were no strangers to pornea. Their culture was simply saturated with this kind of evil. Corinth was a big city. It was a port city, and there was a lot of coming and going from it, and you could pretty much do anything that you wanted in Corinth. Uh, it, there was upwards believed to have about 100,000 people living in it around the time that Paul was writing to them here, and they worshipped a pantheon of gods, of, of goddesses, false deities, demons, in other words, most likely, and one of them was named uh, Aphrodite. And this pagan goddess uh, was a fertility goddess, and there was a huge temple in Corinth for her. And it was written that there was upwards of a thousand temple prostitutes that worked in that temple. So out of a city of a hundred thousand, a thousand people worked as prostitutes in the temple. And not just young ladies, by the way, that's, that's men, that's little boys, that's little girls as well. That's the kind of area that Corinth was. Corinth was a dark place. Porneo was rampant. There was another fertility goddess that they worshipped named Diana, also known as Artemis. And it was reported that there would be city or festivals in the streets of Corinth that would honor her, that would simply put like, the Mar a Mardi Gras celebration in New Orleans to shame. I've never been to one of those uh, festivals in New Orleans, but I've heard a lot about them. And supposedly these festivals to Diana in the streets of Corinth just made that seem tame in comparison. They were filled with debauchery. The, their pornea 
their acceptance of it was extreme. But this is a sin that is being addressed here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a porneia that is not even common among the pagans that is being addressed here. Among the unregenerate Gentiles from a city that celebrates porneia in a manner that is almost unrivaled in history. You know it's bad when these people who seem to lack a conscience when it comes to porneia, that they actually think that this sin is bad. The way he says this, it's not even common among the pagans. He's intending to shock them because, again, this is a people, this is a culture that didn't care about morality and porneia in the same way that the church should. There was, a, there was even a common phrase that existed in the Greco-Roman world that expressed just how common porneia was for them. Listen to this. It's a concubine for your daily needs, a mistress is for pleasure, and a wife is for bearing children. You see how wicked that is, don't you? How dark that is? You not only had a wife for a purpose of apparently making babies, but then two other categories of women for your desires. And that was the common accepted phrase among people. And these same people who celebrated porneia at a number of levels yet found this specific sin that is mentioned among the church in Corinth to be too far. It was not tolerated among them. It's not even common or condoned among the pagans. Yet these Christians, they're allowing it. Now before we get to the specifics and observation, the more that our culture becomes saturated with porneia, the less us Christians tend to be shocked by it. The less we are stunned. The more and more our culture is bombarded and saturated, the more and more it is acceptable and cult culturally and socially, the less Christians tend to be shocked. And the less shocked we are, brothers and sisters, the more vulnerable we are for acceptance. Now, I'm not saying that our culture today is as bad as it was with these first century ethics. I know we like to think that it is. We like to think that right now is the worst times that it has ever been. I don't know that that's necessarily true. But I hope that you all can see that if we're not at least yet at this level, uh, we're certainly on a path that leads to it. If things aren't there yet, if anything, we're on a bullet train approaching this sort of sexual ethics, it's definitely worse now than it was 20 years ago. You know that. You know, if you're at least in your late 30s, you know that to be true. For example, it's a, it's a rare thing today for two Christians to be virgins when they're married. Even Christians that apparently have grown up in the church. That's a problem. That's not right. Culturally, the idea of waiting for marriage is an archaic sentiment, and many in the church, unfortunately, have bought into that. Or, you know, were there gay pride parades 30 years ago? There weren't, right? Where people, you know, just walk around in the nude and celebrate their debauchery? That didn't happen. But it quickly gets worse. Pornea is everywhere. It's accessible. With our technology these days, you can find yourself saturated in pornea even by accident sometimes. And if you purposely intend to seek it out, well, it's not like how it used to be when it was a private and even shameful thing for most society. It's just in your face now. And you couple that with all the attacks about gender and the LGBT movement and that agenda and the attack on the biblical family. Church, we need to be careful that these things never simply become normal to us. These things need to shock us. Pornea needs to shock us. We'll save more on this topic for later sermons, okay? But let's look at this example here in this passage. Because this is shocking. I would hope this is shocking. What kind of porneia is in view here? This is the content of porneia that is not even practiced among Gentiles. We read that someone has his father's wife. A man has his father's wife. Notice, it's just someone. Paul doesn't even mention this man's name, but he certainly knows who this man is. There's people in the church who certainly know who this man is. Perhaps um, people outside the church do as well. And he has his father's wife, his, his stepmom, in other words. Now, we're spared a lot of the details, thank the Lord, but there are some things we can notice from the way Paul addresses the problem. 
the issue of incest here doesn't seem to be with the man's actual mother. It's not his birth mother. That would, of course, be a shock to us as well. But there's no reason that the, the apostle wouldn't mention that if that was the case. Plus, the law given to Israel in Leviticus chapter 18 prohibits both acts. It prohibits one from having one's mother, and also, in the very next verse, it prevents a person from having his father's wife. But we don't know if his father and his mother were divorced, and this was like the father's new wife. Maybe she was a concubine of the father who then became a wife. Or perhaps his birth mother has died and this was his new father's wife. Perhaps she's much younger. Perhaps she's much closer in age to this man than, he, than she was even his father. We don't know any of those things. It's all speculation. Could be that his father is dead. Could be that his father is living still. We don't know. The fine details end up being irrelevant in a sense. They aren't mentioned. But what we do know is enough to have us shocked already. It's enough to have the Apostle Paul shocked. And it wasn't just some one-time thing. He has his father's wife. The terminology implies a steady relationship. Perhaps it could even be that he's married her himself, especially if his dad isn't in the picture anymore. No matter what it is, technically, it's ongoing and people know about it. The, perhaps even the people of Corinth know about it, and they don't tolerate this kind of a sin. The church knows about it, and unbelievably, they are tolerating it. There is a, this is a sexual sin that even the Roman law has made illegal. And by the way, the woman is, is not even addressed, is she? We don't know anything about her at all. Did you notice that? There's no instruction about her. It's put the man out. It's turned him over for the destruction of his flesh. There's no mention of the woman, presumably because she's not a member of the church. Paul's not concerned with instruction about her because she's outside the church. She's probably not even a believer even. If you remember back what he says at the end of chapter 5, God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. So he doesn't even mention this woman. She's probably not even a part of the church herself. It's this man. But here's the reality. The Mosaic Holiness Code in Leviticus 18 actually forbade this kind of relationship. Moses lays out all kinds of sexual sins that violate the moral law of God. We could say that they all fall under the, the seventh commandment, the commandment to not commit adultery, and then also the tenth commandment, the commandment that says you shall not covet. But Leviticus 18 goes as far as to give specific applications of this law. It lays out all kinds of prohibitions against the law or within the law of God. And don't forget friends, that the Bible is our authority. The Bible is the authority, and if the Bible alone forbade it, well, that's simply enough. But, but Paul shows us here that even the Romans think this is wrong. They, even in their darkened understanding, are able to acknowledge that this is a sin. This is something that should not be done. The pagans don't tolerate it. In other words, what Paul is doing is showing them how repulsive and how revolting and how disgusting this relationship actually is. I mean, face it, if it was too bad for the Romans, who were pros at Pornea, it must be really bad. And you would think that a sin like this would just deflate their pride, that it would simply humble them, now being confronted by it, and even without being confronted by it. That this great sin would bring them to their knees, that it would bring them to the cross. This despicable level of sin, it should bring them low. That's what Paul is trying to do for them. They aren't as nearly as spiritual as they think they are. I think about it personally, though. Doesn't sin do that for us? When you're confronted with your sin, sometimes you do something or sometimes you say something that, that shocks you. And you think, oh, where did that come from? Or maybe better yet, who even was that? Like, was that me? Like, did I do that? What happens when sin is exposed in us is that it humbles us. The illusion is torn away. And it automatically makes us to see what is true about ourselves. That is, when we see it and we own it and we recognize it and we're reminded about how much it is that we need Jesus Christ, about how much it is that we need grace, about how much it is that we need the cross, about how much it is that we need the blood of Jesus. That's what Paul is trying to do to the Corinthians here. You're not nearly as spiritual as you think, Corinthians. You're not nearly as awesome as you think. You're not nearly as mature as you think. In fact, you have a kind of sin going on in your assembly that even the Romans don't do. When it happens among them, they don't tolerate it. And an acknowledgement of sin should bring them low. It should bring us low. 
This is why, church, this is why I'm always wanting to remind you, to remind us all that we should preach the gospel to ourselves daily. It's to protect you. It's so that you don't have to be confronted with these gospel truths at the back end of facing your sin. I know I don't love it, at least, uh, to, to know the shame of my sin. I mean, it's good that we're humbled in those cases. It's a testimony that we are God's children because if you're not humbled in the face of your sin, there's a problem there, isn't there? A father disciplines a child whom he loves. It's a scary place to be in when you're living in unrepented sin. But you might, by God's grace, preempt being humbled in that way if you keep the gospel at the forefront of your mind, if you preach the gospel to yourself daily. So you remind yourself every day that you're a sinner who wouldn't seek God if not for God seeking you first, so that you can be aware of the sin that lay at your feet, beckoning you every day, every moment to give in to it, and that you need Christ, and that you need Christ and the strength of the Spirit to resist these temptations so that you don't become arrogant, so that you don't become filled with pride, so that you don't end up giving yourself over to them. That it's by the cross of Christ and the life of Christ that you're accepted so that you don't put yourself in, in the place of being vulnerable in your flesh to the world and to, and to Satan. That you don't let yourself get puffed up. That you don't become prideful. Because if you're God's son or daughter, sin will bring you low. It will humble you. That's a purpose of it in the life of the believer. We, we wonder sometimes, don't we? Like, why do I have to go on sinning? Why does this same sin keep tormenting me? Why can't I not simply get beyond this sin? The Apostle Paul dealt with it, I believe. Remember his cry in Romans 7? Oh, who will deliver me from this body of death? There was a struggle there for him. And that struggle is there for all of us in Christ when we are confronted with our sin. When we acknowledge it, it brings us low. It takes the wind out of our sails and it points us to the cross. And that's where every Christian should be pointed and directed to. Or you could have sin do it, or you can put yourself there at the cross, preaching the gospel to yourself, reminding you yourself of your sin and your need of a Savior. That act can bring you low as well. It reorients, it reorientates you. Which would you rather have? Sometimes, often even, you'll simply get both. But, and God forbid it, if we ever start thinking too highly of ourselves, hopefully he will allow some sin to be made known to us, that it might bring us low, that it will ground us then in his gospel. Now, Christians will fall into sin. That's obvious, right? He who says, he's, he who says he is without sin, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. That's what the Apostle John says, right? Preaching the gospel to yourself daily will help you, but it's not some magical incarnation that automatically prevents sinning. So it's not some shock that we will sin. It's not some prize to us that we will sin, and we're grateful for the pardon of sin that we have in Christ. But as disgusting and as shocking as this sin is in verse 1, the real shocker comes in verse 2. Paul calls them arrogant. They've become proud. They're puffed up. This is the shocker, isn't it? It's not that Christians can fall really badly into bad sins. I mean, you know it if you've been around the church for any length of time now, a long time especially. Christians do all sorts of terrible things that they have no business doing. The real shocker here is that these Christians have become proud and they aren't mourning. They aren't weeping over this sin. They're tolerating it. They have given it a pass, and this disposition towards sin is deadly. It's a cancer. And what they should have done is cast this person out of the church. He needs to be removed. They are puffed up, and they're proud. And they don't do that. This is the problem of the church in Corinth, I think. If we're forced to choose a root issue, their pride has led to a host of other problems. Paul uses this word for arrogant here in 1 Corinthians more than in all of his other letters combined. That should tell us something, right? This is an ongoing problem for the saints in Corinth. They are in a state of arrogance and conceit, and it's ongoing. It's likely to become a permanent characteristic of theirs, and you know the danger of arrogance, don't you? If you're arrogant, it's self-deceiving. You don't know that you have it. And if you're deceived about yourself, well then, what are you probably not deceived about. Probably everything else, if you're deceived about yourself. 
And these people are arrogant. They ought to be mourning, but they don't see it. Now, what is it that they are actually arrogant about? Where is their pride found? This is important, actually. It's in, so I'm sorry that I'm going a little bit long this morning, but this is important. So please get this. It's important in understanding the sin that Paul's confronting here in this church. What is it that they are puffed up about? Well, it comes down to two options, really. Number one, they are puffed up in spite of this sin. Okay, they're puffed up in spite of the sin. That is a possibility for believers to be puffed up, in, to be arrogant, to be proud in spite of sin in your life. In spite of the porneia. Some commentators take this position that the church here is simply ignoring the sin because of some reason that is blinding them to the weight of sin. Perhaps this man is wealthy. Perhaps he's a big tither. Maybe removing him would hinder the work of ministry in this city. Well, sadly, brothers and sisters, that very thing does happen in churches, even today, where people don't get confronted because they financially give to the church. Another example that some commentators offer is that perhaps this man was a gifted teacher. Perhaps he was very charismatic. Perhaps he had a, a certain charm about himself that drew a lot of people to the church. And so confronting his, him and his sin is going to stop that from happening. It attracts people who don't know about his sin, at least. But, I mean, that's far-fetched, isn't it? I mean, that, that type of thing would never happen, does it? There's no way a church could let a man continue in ministry who indulged in unrepentant porneia, would they? Well, sadly, it does happen. Just within the last 50 days, maybe it's even shorter than that, this past year has been so long, there's been at least two guys that have been in the news for this exact reason. High-profile Christian leaders engaged in long-term porneia. There's a pastor from Hillsong Church. It's very sad. He had a wife and children, yet he was engaged in pornea with multiple women over the years. Where was the church discipline leading up to the exposure of his sin? We don't know of it. Maybe, it, maybe nobody knew about it. I don't know. But it's Hillsong, so I'm not too surprised. Still, though, it's very sad. And then more surprisingly... There are the confirmed allegations against Ravi Zacharias, which came out after his death. I don't know what his involvement was at a local church. Like, I don't know where Ravi went to church and you know, if they could have expelled him church for such behavior. He was more, at least to me, a traveling uh, itinerant or itinerant, I forget the word, a preacher who would travel and go and do apologetics conferences and things like that. And he was well known. But, and it came out after his death that he was involved in multiple scandalous affairs. So my point is that this kind of thing actually does happen. And so maybe Paul calls the Corinthians arrogant and full of pride, and maybe he calls them puffed up in spite of their sin. Some commentators even say that the people in the church who knew of the sin simply didn't confront him because it wouldn't be expedient for them to do so. And if that's the case, Paul is saying to them that they have no reason to become proud because they have this sin going on. But even in spite of this, you're ignoring it and you're continuing in your sin. That's possible. It could be the case. The other option, I think, is more likely, though. Paul calls the saints in Corinth proud because they are puffed up concerning this pornea. The reason they are proud has to deal exactly with this issue that they have before them. In other words, they are proud because they are tolerating this sin. They are fully aware of the vileness of it, and they are aware of the culture around them which wouldn't tolerate it, and yet here they are tolerating this pornea. And they've downplayed it. They look at the sin and their acceptance and they say, man, oh, look how tolerant we are. Look how free we are. Maybe they even say, look how free we are in Christ. You know what kind of church this is then, right? This is the kind of church that looks down upon other churches, other professing Christians for not holding the same view as them. They are an affirming church, as it were. They affirm people in their identity. Or they affirm people in their choices. Notice I don't say they affirm people in their sin. No, because they won't acknowledge that it is in fact sin. Why? Because they're filled with pride. They're puffed up. They're arrogant. They should be mourning. They should be filled with tears. And they should remove this man. But their pride won't let them. I want to... Remind you all of something that I mentioned back in chapter 2 of this letter, and this is why I think that this option, too, is more likely the reason for their arrogance. They are proud because they tolerate sin. So back in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul makes the claim that he didn't come to them with lofty words and wisdom. 
but with a demonstration of spirit and power. The spirit's power, not his, because he also admits in that same section that he is weak and he's trembling. And that he's determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Do you remember that passage? It's, it's, a fee, or it's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1-5. through 5. Now, from that passage, I wanted to make the case that Paul had what Martin Luther called a theology of the cross, rather than a theology of glory. Now, theology of glory doesn't sound bad to us. I mean, glory is good, God is glorious, what's the problem here? But it's important to understand this distinction in light of what we speak about, a a theology of glory in contrast to a theology of the cross. A theology of glory is all about being wrongly built up. We're not speaking of God's glory at this point. We're speaking of man's glory, a false glory. And it comes with an arrogant disposition a view of oneself that is is simply far too high. And it could be so bad that you end up even boasting in sin. That's where we are here in chapter 5. Whereas, if you looked at yourself through the cross, you would not be arrogant, right? Because you would see yourself as a sinner in need of grace. You don't make the rules. You don't call all the shots. You are a humble servant of God, in fact. You have a cross that you must bear yourself. You need to daily die to self and pick up your cross daily, not to save yourself, but in response to what God has done for you with the cross of Christ. But look back to chapter 4, okay? I said we would go there. Paul is there in chapter 4 trying to bring them low, trying to humble them, just like he is by exposing their sin, which should cause them to mourn here in chapter 5 and 6. But if you look back at chapter 4, look at what he says to them there at verse 8. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. You see, he's, he's acknowledging that they're not actually that. And would that you did reign. Verse 9, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the the refuse of all things. You see the difference between Paul and them, right? Paul, whose eye is on the cross, in comparison to this supposed exalted position that they think they have. And then in verse 14, I do not write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. You see, at this point, he's not wanting to make them be ashamed. He's wanting to admonish them. He's wanting to correct them. He's encouraging them to make a change. Verse 16 says that he actually wants them to imitate him. And then after that, he turns to address their arrogance to the rest of chapter 4 until we get here to chapter 5, in which he now rebukes them for being arrogant. And I would argue that he is wanting, at this point here in chapter 5, to make them ashamed ashamed now. Chapter 5, verse 6, your boasting is not good. So they see themselves as an affirming church. They are proud and they, are, they accept this man with the choices that he makes. They are theologians of glory and the cross is a back burner issue. They are rich, they are kings, they have all they need, according to chapter 4, right? And the Apostle Paul says, you are boasting because you think that you are above these things, but really you are outside of what is right. You're not being orthodox. You've lost sight of the cross. You've lost sight of the gospel. You're denying the gospel and affirming this man in his sin. Does Paul applaud them for what they're doing? He doesn't. He does not. He tells them that they should mourn. They have a view of themselves that is too high. They need to mourn because tolerating sin like this is an affront to God. It is a scandal. It is a cancer in the church that grows, and you need to cut cancer out, right? You can't just let cancer remain. How come? Because it grows. You need to remove it before it spreads, before it's too late. The grief that they should be experiencing over this sin, which they are blind to because of their pride, should cause them to remove him from the church, to excommunicate him. And I'll tell you, church, it might be hard to receive. But when Paul says, let him be removed from you, he doesn't simply mean ban him from the Lord's Supper. It doesn't simply mean prevent him from being involved in certain ministries. 
there is a time and place for those sort of things, certainly within church discipline. But here what he means is to remove him, to have him be excommunicated. There's a time and place for that church. There's a time and place for this as well. But they did nothing. Well, that's actually not true. They did something. They tolerated it. There needs to be a Phineas among them. Do you guys remember, church, the account of Phineas uh, in, back when Israel was wandering in the desert? If you, if you would, turn with me to Numbers 25. I want you to see this for yourself. We need to see it. It's a graphic account. Numbers being the fourth book in the Old Testament, okay? Numbers chapter 25. We'll look at verse 1 to 6. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. So there you have Pornea, right? They're whoring with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that their fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So, you see the Lord's instruction against Pornea here, right? Verse 6, uh, the, the Lord told them to, to kill those people. In verse 6, you see that the people have the right response. They are weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. They are mourning. This is the response that Paul expected the saints in Corinth have. But also, in the same verse, we read of someone who tolerated the sin. We meet a theologian of glory, as it were. And he, this Midian, he brings this guy, he brings a Midianite woman before everyone. He doesn't agree with the Lord about this matter. He thinks he knows what is right. Let's continue reading to see what Phineas does. Verse, beginning at verse 7. When Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus, the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And if it's not clear that Phinehas did the right thing here in, chapter seven, um, here in verse 7, if we continue reading, it would be abundantly clear because God himself praises Phinehas for his zeal. Zeal for what? Zeal for this man's glory? No. Zeal for God's holiness. Zeal for the glory of the Lord. It's for the holiness of the people. It's for the reputation of God's people before a lost world. He's not tolerating the sin, is he? Now, of course, Paul's instruction here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is not to skewer this man who's in this wicked sin. He's not to skewer this man and this woman. But it's not because God has changed or because his standard has changed at all. Make no mistake about it. What has changed is the covenant that God is in with his people. In Numbers, he's in the old covenant with Israel, a special covenant with that nation alone. But then he actually says that he gives to Phineas the covenant of peace in verse 12. And I just I love this church because what we see is that this historical event is brought about by God's purposes here in Numbers 25 so that he might also reveal the covenant of grace, the new covenant through a type. The type being Phineas and his zeal. And God said that Phineas made atonement for the people by his action, verse 13, which is now associated with this covenant of peace. And guess what covenant God is in with the people at Corinth? It's the new covenant. It's the covenant of grace, the covenant by which Christ made atonement for his people. And so in the new covenant, it's not necessary to put to death offenders of the law. That's not the church's job. Not physically. We don't live in an old covenant community. There's discontinuity, but there's also continuity. So they must do something. And as 1 Corinthians 5, 2, him who has done this must be removed. But apparently there's no one with the same sort of zeal, the same sort of spirit as Phineas here in Corinth. Instead, they tolerate sin. 
Paul is telling them, he's teaching us even, that tolerance of sin is in fact a sign of our own arrogance. This is the pride of the so-called tolerant. It causes them to allow sin and even boast while being in sin. And so Paul says, you should be so brokenhearted that you should have acted and you should have acted right away. Instead, you've become arrogant and puffed up and you have thought how tolerant we are. This is very relevant, friends. And the reality, church, is that when they did this, when they failed to act against sin, they are, what they were in fact saying is that our standard is higher than God's standard. When people do this, they think they have a more loving standard than God himself. That they didn't need to do anything with this man and his relationship other than boast in their freedom and their decision. They felt like they had the right view. The same attitude is very frequent in the church today. Our society is constantly tempted by this. Whenever people put their own standard above God's, it is pure pride. And this happens so much today, not just in the world, but sadly in the church. And you can notice this. You can hear it because they give themselves away. They say something like this, and I know you've heard something like this before. They say, oh, I've been rethinking what the Bible says about homosexuality. Or I've been rethinking what the Bible says about gay marriage. Or I've been rethinking what the Bible says about gender roles. Or I've been rethinking whatever it is, whatever topic. And I've come to this different place now. I've come to a modern view. Do you know what that is, church? It is nothing more than pure, ungodly pride. It is arrogance. Submission to the Word of God means that we submit ourselves to God's authority and believe what He says no matter what the culture is now saying we should believe. Do you get that? The minute that someone starts to elevate their opinion of what the Bible says, do you understand what they are in fact saying? They're saying that they are more loving than God Himself. They're saying that they know better than God. And that is blasphemy. If God has said it, then it is enough, church. That is a standard. We haven't become more spiritually and ethnically enlightened in our time. Romans 1 is just as true of people today as it was when Paul wrote it nearly 2,000 years ago. And this is especially tragic when people in the church do this. We expect people on the outside of the church to do this kind of thing. I mean, who was surprised when Nancy Pelosi came out on January 1st with a plan to remove gendered roles for familial titles within congressional hearings? Does that surprise anybody? No, right? I mean, this is what we expect from the world. But it happens in the church, too. And that pressure to make these kinds of changes is coming upon us all with a ferocity. Maybe it might be a little bit harder against you that are younger, you who are young adults, you who are teenagers. You're being asked to rethink and come to new conclusions on just about every issue of morality that the Bible speaks about. And if you don't submit, if you cling to what the world calls old-fashioned and backwards, you will be mocked. You will be ridiculed on the college campuses. You will be canceled on social media. You won't simply be included if you don't conform to what the world says. That's happening now. And it's happening, and because of that, we all need to be aware of it. Listen, it would be far better to be deemed a backwards bigot than it is to be praised by the wisdom of the world. I mean, some of these people, they are just so woke now that you can't even keep up with them. They can't even keep up with themselves. J.K. Rowling, was, who was a liberal, was just in the news recently for not being progressive enough. The wisdom of the world is not worthy of the praise of the world. And the Apostle Paul's already addressed that in this letter. And we need to be careful as Christians to never call what is evil good. Because to do so is to assert yourself as being wiser than God. So then, what is Paul's instruction to these Christians? They should have mourned, but in their tolerance they showed themselves to be prideful. What does Paul say they should have done? Let him be removed from you. Just a couple of comments. Well, you know what? It's 1047. What I'll do, is that the right time? That is the right time. I'll give these comments to Nick, because we're going to be dealing with church discipline in the coming weeks over chapter 5 as well, too. It's a, I'll say this very briefly. It was a loving thing for Paul to say to the church there to remove him immediately. It may sound harsh, but it was, in fact, a loving thing. There's a myth that says church discipline is not loving. It is, in fact, loving. And there's two good reasons for that. I'll try to pass that on to Nick, and maybe he could touch on it or not. We'll see if he has time. But let's pray, and then we'll turn our attention to the Lord's table. Father in heaven, we thank you for this text. It's a very relevant 
and modern problem that we have in the church today as well. And we pray that you would, because of your love for your beloved Son, your only begotten Son, that you would cause us to be sanctified so that we may never, ever choose to call what is evil good, that we may never, because of grace, be puffed up and arrogant so as to think that we know what is right, that we can go beyond what your word says and set up a standard of what is good. Please, Lord, guide us by your word. We confess as a church that your word is sufficient, that it is inerrant, that it is holy. But help us then, Lord, to not simply let that be the doctrinal mark of our church, but let it be the practice of every person here today. Let it be the practice of every person watching online. Help us, Lord, to think of sin the way that you do. Give us a godly zeal that we may put it to death, remembering that all of our sins have been atoned for in Christ. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.